So good evening, everyone, and it's a pleasure for me to introduce uh, Tanisra Bhikkhu, uh, sometimes known as Ajahn Jeff, or occasionally as Tan Jeff, and um, he's one of the preeminent um, teachers here in America, and um, he's done a remarkable job in taking the teachings of the Buddha and the teachings of the Thai uh, meditation masters and uh, introducing them into, uh, not only to into English, but into the American culture and the way we kind of think and, and, uh, and uh, or, you know, try to think. <laughs> and uh, he, has, um, he has a monastery in... <laughs> when you... What? Yeah. So, um, when you talk ex- extemporaneously sometimes, you don't know what's coming out. <laughs> it sounds good, you know, you have a good running start, and then you realize you don't have an end. <laughs> And uh, uh, John Jeff is um, the abbot of a monastery in San Diego County, and um, meditation monastery where people go to meditate, and he trains um, monks. He practiced in Thailand for many years, is fluent in Thai, and translates many books of the Thai forest masters into English, has translated many of the teachings of the Buddha from Pali into English, and and um, also has written extensively his own commentary and thoughts about the teachings of the Buddha, which are all quite uh, interesting and useful to read. Many of them are available here at the center. Many of the books that are offered freely here um, come from Tanjef. Um, he's responsible for the publication, the translations, or the writing. And uh, it's a great honor to have you come here and, and uh, teach, teach in our center. We're very grateful. Thank you. It's good Thank to be you. here. And As I apologize always. for my... Inadequacies in speaking. Okay. Okay. Well, as long as I get to have some inadequacies too, I mean, we're, we're even. Okay. The title of tonight's talk is "The Wisdom of the Ego." The word egolessness was introduced into Western Buddhism about well, about four decades ago, as a way of translating the teachings on not self. The idea was that if you could take the teachings and put them into words that Westerners understand, taken from their own culture, it would be easier to understand the teachings. Now, this has caused problems in several ways. Um, what it has done, primarily, is that it's taught, taught us Buddhists in the West that the ego is the bad guy. And Buddhist writers who tend to be very meek and mild and friendly and nonviolent in their communication can get really nasty when they talk about the ego. You've probably heard of the ego as the bureaucracy in the mind that has to be overthrown. (laughs) You see pictures of the ego drawn, it looks kind of rat-like and nasty and mean, and it's the sort of thing you just want to smash. And, um, you know, whatever subconscious aggressive desires Buddhists seem to have tend to be directed at the ego. This is unfortunate in a lot of ways and causes a lot of problems. Um, The first is simply that the word ego is very vague. When we talk about someone having a lot of ego, we can think of all different kinds of meanings. One is just simply a sense of conceit, self-importance, someone who does things only for their own good and don't think about the the good of other people. Um, On a deeper sense, many times the teaching of egolessness is used to teach that we really have no separate self. There's no separate you there at all, Um, which has has brought many problems into different Buddhist communities. Once we adopt this kind of thinking, 
Um, on the one hand, it tends to attract people who want to go through um, what some people have termed spiritual bypassing. Um, is that a familiar term in this community? What it means basically is that you want to do the practice and you don't want to worry about your psychological development as an individual. In fact, you get justified. I don't have to do any psychological development because after all, there's nothing there to develop. <laughs> all you have to do is practice. And, and it'll take care of all your problems. Sit and meditate, chant your mantra, whatever. It'll take care of your problems. This is called spiritual bypassing. Um, the second problem is that some people actually come to the practice with a fair amount of self-hatred. And this gives them a justification for you know, more hatred of themselves. Just they obliterate the self and you're going to be okay. Um, other people come along and they see Buddhism as good in so many ways when it tells you that you have no separate self and they feel that they're forced to deny their individuality. Not to admit what they did, you know, to de deny their desires, deny the skills that they've developed as individuals. Um, Western psychologists look at this and they say, this is disastrous. And of course, Western psychology has lots of different theories about what the word ego means, too. I mean, you've basically got the Freudian ego, and you've got the Gestalt therapy ego. The Gestalt therapy ego, is their theory is that you have these nice waves of emotion that come through, and the ego is the, the brick wall that stops the emotion. Um, they tend to think of the ego, the whole purpose of their therapy is to get rid of the ego. In Freudian psychotherapy, though, the ego is necessary. And it's interesting to think a little bit about what Freud was talking about when he talked about ego. He basically divided the personality into three sections, and it's better to think of it as three different kinds of functions in your mind. The first function is just basic raw desire. You want this, you want that, you don't like this, you don't like that, and it's, and it's kind of your, your inner child that's not going to wait for anything. I do have a friend who's a psychotherapist, and she says the only people who are really qualified to talk about their inner child are pregnant women. But, <laughs> but we do have we do have these very strong raw desires. That's the id. You have your id functions. On the other hand, you have what's called the superego functions, which are basically what you've picked up on the ideas about what you should and should not do. You pick these ideas up from your parents. You pick them up from your own experience. You pick them up from religion. You pick them up from lots of outside sources. Your sense of what's proper and what's improper. You know, basically the shoulds by which we all live. And so each person in the Freudian model has this basic conflict because your raw desires go against your idea, your knowledge of what should and should not be done. This is where ego comes in. The ego is your sense of self, which is there basically to make sure that you can survive in the midst of this conflict. It has these different ego defenses. In other words, to defend itself from its desires on the one hand and to defend itself from unreasonable shoulds and should nots on the other hand. When your parents tell you things that you may feel are really not in your own best interest. Your government may tell you things that you may feel are not in your own best interest. And your ego, your individuality, is the voice inside that says, I've got to negotiate or I've got to say yes or no and figure out some way to survive in the midst of these different... Um, Pressures from outside. Then, of course, there's the pressures coming from inside, and your, your desire to have sex with your neighbor's spouse. This is something that would really harm your survival, you know, especially if your neighbor <laughs> tends to be violent. You know. So you've got to, and if your own spouse tends to be violent. Um, <coughs> so you've, you've got to learn, just basically for your survival, you have to learn how to negotiate these different demands inside the mind. On top of that, in the Freudian view of the superego, 
if you look at Freud's idea of our, what we carry around inside their minds, it's like, a, it's like a caricature of the Judeo-Christian God. I'm someone who's all-knowing up there and is going to punish you. You've probably seen the, the Far Side cartoon with God sitting at his computer with his finger and on the smite button. <laughs> Somebody up there who's all-knowing and is ready to punish you for the slightest thing. This is one of the reasons why in the Freudian model, ego functions tend to be subconscious. The feeling is that you can hide them from yourself, you can hide them from God. Whoever this all-knowing creature is up there is going to know everything. Now, from the Freudian point of view, if you didn't have an ego, you'd have big problems. On the one hand, either you'd be an automaton, automaton, neurotic, repressed, with no real personality of your own. On the other hand, you'd be a beast with uncontrolled impulses if the id took over. Or you'd be an infantile monster kind of thrashing back and forth between these two ways of either being very repressed or very <clears throat> sort of letting go of your repressions. Um, so if you think of if you think of Buddhism as teaching lack of ego or decrying the ego as something bad, from the Western the point of view of Freudian psychology, Buddhism lacks a lot of important things in training the mind. This is one of the basic theses you will sometimes hear, was that you know, Buddhism may be good about not self-side, but the self-side Buddhism really lacks a lot. And therefore, Buddhism, as to be a complete mind training, is going to need the help of Western psychotherapy to come in and make things whole. Now, the question is, I mean, is this really a, an accurate picture of what the Buddha was teaching? One way you can check it is simply to look at Asian people. I mean, do they look repressed? Do they look like they're, they're not able to function properly? And you look and you see all sorts of healthy ego functioning going on in Asia. Um, from the Freudian point of view, there are five functions that they say are necessary for the ego. One is anticipation. You have a sense of self that tells you that someplace down the line there are going to be some dangers, so now you have to prepare for the dangers down the line so that you don't suffer down the line. If you're not able to anticipate in that way, you're going to be you know, coming up against a lot of problems in the future. Secondly is the, th is, the, is the principle of suppression. Now, suppression is not repression. Suppression means simply knowing that if I can deny myself certain pleasures now, I will get a bigger return further down the line. The old principle of deferred gratification. You, know, you work hard today, you get your paycheck at the end of the week. And then you don't just quit the job and, and spend the money. You, you go back and you work again next Monday and you sort of build up the money that you need. This is basically suppression. And we're willing to put up with certain difficulties now so that we can enjoy things further down the line. Another healthy function <coughs> is sublimation. When you realize that you've got a desire for pleasure, but the most the normal things you're thinking about that would lead to that satisfaction of the desire are going to be unhealthy for us. You figure out healthy, good ways of satisfying the desire. Engaging in art, engaging in sports, these are supposed to be sublimation of desires. Then there's altruism, which is the ability to realize that your happiness is going to depend on the happiness of other people. So you want to provide for their happiness for your own sake. And then the fifth is humor, your ability to laugh at yourself. This is an extreme survival technique. If you can't laugh, laugh at yourself, you've got big problems. And you look at Asian people and they have all five of these functions, you know, just like we do. So the question is, do they have these functions in spite of Buddhism or because of Buddhism? And this is where I'd like to take you 
take a look at the Pali Canon. To begin with, to look at the Pali Canon, the Buddha in his Anatta teaching was not saying that there is no self or that you should not have a self. He's simply saying that there are types of clinging that we engage in when we cling to ideas of self, which are really unskillful. In fact, he brings the teaching of, he never takes a position whether there is a self or is not a self, but he says self-being is something that we do. And therefore, like any kind of karma, any kind of action, it can either be skillful or unskillful. You can have a skillful sense of self. In fact, his definition of wisdom starts with asking the question, what, when I do, it will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness. Notice the word I, my, in there. There is a sense of me functioning in this. And it's seen that long-term welfare and happiness is preferable to short-term. This insight is actually the basis of suppression. The ability to see, okay, if I give up certain small pleasures now, I'll get greater pleasures down the line. In fact, there's another point where the Buddha talks about using the sense of I and mind as necessary parts of the practice. Ananda, his, one of his primary students, once said that we practice in order to overcome conceit, but you need conceit, the sense that I am, in order to overcome it. He says basically it starts out with the insight that okay, other people can do this practice, why can't I? Now, there's a big I there, you know, but it's a healthy I. It's the I that impels you along the way. And further on, you look throughout the different teachings and you see that these the five different healthy ego functions are things that the Buddha actually taught. He didn't call them ego functioning, but they're still things that he teaches people to do. Um, part of our problem in the West is we come to the Dharma, we try to aim straight for the top, and we miss a lot of the steps leading up to the top. When I first started practicing meditation, I had a dream that I was at a museum of Buddhism. And... The Museum of Buddhism had two ways to get to the top floor. One was to take the stairway and the other was to take a ladder up the side. And in my dream, I said, well, why bother with a ladder? Let's go straight up. The, let's, why bother with the stairway? Just go straight up the ladder. And in, also in my dream, I started falling off the ladder. So this is, I think this is typical of us. So it's good to think at some of the, ba- look at some of the basic sort of healthy ego functioning, healthy personality traits that the Buddha recommends. First one is the principle of suppression. There's a, sutta, there's a passage in the Dhammapada, Dhammapada 290, where the Buddha says, if you see a greater happiness that comes from abandoning a lesser happiness, be willing to abandon the lesser happiness for the sake of the greater one. A basic no-brainer, you would think. Uh, but we don't live that way. Um, when I was taking exams in Thailand, they actually have exams for monks. Your first three years of monks, you have, to, you have to study these textbooks and take exams. And one of the textbooks they give you is a, is a book of short sayings of the Buddha in Pali and in Thai. And they ask you for part of the exam to write a little Dharma talk. They will give you a topic. And then they will ask you to bring in either one or two or three, depending on which year, doing, which year you're doing the exams, of these passages that you've memorized. Tie it into the topic and bring the talk to a conclusion. And where I was studying, there were lots of little novices studying the books, and they would not—they would memorize page after page after page of these things. And you know our American educational system, we don't memorize much. We don't have much practice in that. And I figured the only way I was going to be able to beat the novices is if I could think of one passage that would cover everything. <laughs> no matter what topic was brought up, you know. And, and I chose this one. If you see a lesser happiness, that, you know, the greater happiness that comes from abandoning a lesser happiness, you would be willing to abandon the lesser one for the sake of the greater one. I always passed, <laughs> based on that one. 
So it, it's a basic principle all the way across the board. Sublimation. The Buddha teaches the practice of jhana, the practice of strong absorption, where you gain states of concentration that bring a sense of ease, a sense of well-being, even a sense of rapture to the mind, simply by the way you breathe, simply by the way you focus on the body in the present moment. You can access these states of well-being, these states of pleasure. And when you find yourself up against the desire for other things that you know are going to be harmful, you can tap back into this and, say, and give yourself at least a sense of ease right now that can carry you through sort of the, the dry spots of these desires. The Buddha teaches anticipation. In fact, it was so important that it was his last teaching, his teaching on heedfulness. So remind yourself that your actions really do make a difference, that your happiness depends on what you do, and you've got to be careful because you can make some mistakes that can have long-term consequences. And so his very last teaching was a teaching on heedfulness, and he repeated it many, many times at the basis of all skillful qualities comes from heedfulness. So there's anticipation. Altruism as a function of finding happiness. There's a story <coughs> in the canon where King Basenity is up in his bedroom with Queen Malika. And he turns to her at one point and he says, is there anyone you love more than yourself? Now if this were a Hollywood B-movie, she would say, of course, Your Majesty, I love you more than I love myself. And the violins would swell in the background and, you know, you know, what would happen in the movie. Well, this isn't the movie. This is the polycanon. And Queen Malika's no fool. She says, no, there's nobody I love more than myself. How about you? <laughs> and the king says, well, you're right. There's nobody I love more than myself. So he leaves the bedroom, goes down and sees the Buddha. And the Buddha says, basically reports their conversation. And the Buddha says, that's true. You search the world and you will not find anyone who loves anyone else more than they love themselves. He says, now when you think about this, you will not want to cause anyone any harm. And there's two ways you can think about this. One is a sense of resonance, that we all resonate to this, this, this basic desire, that we all love ourselves. The second one is if you really desire long-term welfare and happiness, if your welfare and happiness depends on someone else's suffering, they're not going to stand for it. They're not going to be happy to see you just walk all over them. They're going to do what they can to fight back. So if you really are serious about being happy, you have to take other people's happiness into consideration. This is the basic principle of altruism. And you look at um, all the Buddhist teachings on generosity, his teachings on virtue, his teachings on meditation, developing goodwill, compassion. All of these come down to the fact that you can't really be happy unless you take other people's happiness into consideration. And at the same time, if you start taking their, really do take their happiness into consideration by being generous with them, by not harming them, you find a greater sense of well-being inside. Finally, there's the principle of humor. Now, a lot of people tell me that the Pali Canon is a pretty humorless document, but you're not looking in the right spots. You've got to look in the Vinaya, which is the monk's rules. And now, it's not that the rules are funny. <laughs> it's that there are lots of stories that point out why the rules were formulated to begin with. And the, rule, and the stories show a lot about human nature. Um, one of my favorites is of a monk. His name is Jula Pantaka. And Jula Pantaka was not all that bright, but he did manage to focus very single-mindedly on practicing the Buddha's teachings, and he became an arahant. Now, after he became an arahant, one of his duties was to teach the nuns. They had a rotating roster of the monks who would be appointed every, every two weeks to go and teach the nuns. 
And in this particular story, the nuns hear that it's Julabandika's turn to teach them. And she says, oh, they say to themselves, oh, this is not going to work. He just knows one stanza of the Buddha's teachings. And he's just going to repeat that over and over and over again. It's going to drive us crazy and we're not going to gain enlightenment. It's just not, it's not going to happen. So they go to the instruction and Julabandika asks them if they're observing their precepts. They say they are. And he says, okay, here's the instruction. And he starts repeating the stanza over and over and over again. And the nuns turn to each other and say, didn't we tell you? <laughs> this is not going to be effective. He's just going to repeat this thing over and over again. Well, Julabandika has ears. He hears what they say. So, he thinks to himself, I'll show them. So he levitates up into the sky, starts spouting flames, light, water, disappears, reappears, many versions of Julabandika, repeating that stanza and many other stanzas of the Buddha. And the nuns say, wow, we've never had such an effective Dharma talk. <laughs> and Julabandika gets carried away and so he keeps displaying his powers until after sunset. So, the poor nuns have to go back to their nunnery. Now, their nunnery is in the city. And back in those days, the city closed its gates at sunset, which means they couldn't get back in. So they have to spend the night outside the gates. And then when the gates open the next morning at dawn, the nuns come filing in, and the people say, oh, here are the nuns coming from spending the night with the monks last night. <laughs> so as a result, the rule is nuns are, monks are not allowed to teach nuns after, dawn, after sunset. <laughs> <laughs> But you read these stories, and it's all very, very human, and it's, there's kind of a smile in all the stories. I mean, not all the stories, but many of the stories, and you really see human nature. It's, you can't really set forth a good pattern of rules without understanding human nature, without having a good sense of humor about the way people are. So the Pali Canon teaches all of these five principles of healthy ego functioning. There's suppression, there's sublimation, anticipation, altruism, and humor. Um, the difference is, is the way the Buddha sees how, the structure, how these functions function within the mind, the role that they play, exactly what the territory in the mind is. Now, I'll try to keep this short because we're running out of time. But to begin with, Buddhism has a different superego. There's no all-knowing God up there pushing things on you. The Buddha's superego, his sense of shoulds, come from the Four Noble Truths. Each of the Four Noble Truths has a should associated with it. Suffering should be comprehended. Its cause should be abandoned. The cessation should be known and the path should be developed. Comprehending suffering, abandoning its cause, realizing its cessation and then developing the path. Now these are shoulds that are on your side. Basically they're for the sake of your happiness. You want to comprehend suffering. Why? So you can let go of the cause and be, and be done with suffering. And so on down the line. You develop these factors of the path, even though effort is involved, but they lead down the line eventually to um, a happiness that lies beyond conditions. So the one thing, you've got a superego and it's basically on your side. So the ego does is basically has a friend in its shoulds. And secondly, this means that the, the ego doesn't have to be worried so much about its survival. Ego functioning within Buddhism is more like strategies. It's not defenses, they're strategies for happiness way you strategize your life so you can get to a greater happiness. So it's not just defending, it's not just working for survival, you're working for a positive happiness. Another difference is that the means of operation, ego functionings don't have to be subconscious. You'll be clear about the fact that you're doing this for your own good. 
the Buddha says the pursuit of happiness is not a bad thing. After all, wisdom begins with looking for long-term happiness. Compassion begins with realizing your happiness and the happiness of other people have to work together. Purity, which is the other virtue of the Buddha, comes from looking at your actions and making sure that they really do harm nobody. They don't harm yourself, they don't harm other people. So your pursuit of happiness is considered a good thing in Buddhism. Simply the question is how to do it wisely. That's the only difference. So you've got, you've got a friendly superego, you've got an ego that doesn't have to hide. It's not working just at defending itself, but it's working more at strategizing for happiness. And it defines happiness in, a, in terms of a reality principle that says your true well-being and the true well-being of other people doesn't have to be in conflict. When you're developing generosity for your own good, other people benefit. When you're being virtuous for your own good, other people benefit. When you practice concentration, develop goodwill, develop strong states of concentration, develop the wisdom that can overcome your greed, anger, and delusion, other people are not subject to your greed, anger, and delusion. They benefit as well. In fact, if you look at the Buddha's teachings on the practice, you see it in the beginning. He talks, you know, talks using the terms of I and mind. You read the discourse on mindfulness and you ask yourself, is there sensual pleasure present, sensual desire present within me? Are these good things, are these bad things present within me? The I and the mind function very clearly there. But as you get more and more into the practice, the Buddha has you see your sense of happiness. There's no clear boundary between your happiness and the happiness of other people if you do it right. Which means that the emphasis gets less and less on, on the I and the me and keeping it very solid. You begin to see things more in terms of cause and effect. There are actions which give results. And there are actions which give you know, narrowly good results and there are actions which give good results that can spread around to all people. And so the sense of I and mind is not a necessary part of, does not have to be a necessary part of healthy ego functioning. You, you see it in terms of cause and effect. You look at your actions and what are the results of these actions and the I does not have to be very strongly defined. Your sense of cause and effect has to be strongly defined. You have to be very clear about that. When you do X, what are the actual consequences? And ultimately you get, as your practice gets more and more refined, and you start shedding un unhealthy habits because you see they don't benefit anybody. Then you finally get to the point where you can say, well, even this idea of I, this I, self thing that I'm doing, is there a point, what would be the benefits of letting go of that completely? That's when you finally let go of any sense of self, and that's when you can open up to the deathless. But the Buddha's rationale for doing that even comes with an ego rationale, which the Buddha says, whatever is not truly you or yours, let go of it, that will be to your long-term welfare and happiness. Again, you're letting go of the sense of I for your long-term welfare and happiness. So it's not that you have to throw away your desire for happiness or you think only of the well-being of others. That would be the super-ego run amok. Totally out of control. You realize, learn how to function in a skillful way in which you benefit, other people benefit as well. You develop healthy ego functioning. You can function as a mature human being in a way that's good for yourself, good for the people around you. So it's in this way that the Buddha teaches a sense of I and mine as a type of action, and then he has you look at it in terms of what are the results of the different ways that you define you and you. I mean, this, this is something we could get into on another time. The fact that we define ourselves in many, many different ways, even in the course of the day, to say no, nothing over a lifetime. We've been doing it ever since we were little kids. 
you're fighting with your little sister over a toy. Is your little sister you? Is she part of the larger you? No. She's the other. To be beaten off at any cost. <laughs> Until your parents come in and say, stop that. Okay. But then you go outside and suppose some bully down the street comes up and starts beating on your sister. What do you do? You've got to defend her because she's your sister. All of a sudden, she is part of you. And then you get back to the house and the mother gives you a glass of milk and you steal her, you steal her glass of milk. You know, it's, it's, your, sense, your boundaries of where you are and where you, you know, between you and the outside keep changing all the time. We've been doing this ever since we were little kids. We've been practicing not-self ever since we were little kids. Dropping it for a while and then picking it up again. And the Buddha says simply, if you learn how to look at things clearly in terms of cause and effect, you can do this a lot more skillfully. So it's not just selfish and it's not just short-sighted, it's actually long-sighted, helpful for all the people around you. So if you look at the Buddha's teachings, he's not teaching egolessness, he's teaching how to be very skillful in your ego functions but seeing them precisely in terms of cause and effect, where they're helpful, where they're not. You can pick them up, you can put them down as, as, you, see, as you see appropriate. I'd like to end the talk with a little story talking about caricatures of God. There's a story from The Once and Future King. How many of you have ever read the book The Once and Future King by T.H. White? Not that many. I'd actually recommend, if you have the time to read a piece of fiction, it's a really good one. It's T.H. White's retelling of the Arthur legend. And in the first book, of the, it's a, it's a, it was a collection of many volumes, which was later printed as one book. But in the first volume, it's young Arthur, or quote, Wart, when he was a young boy, being trained by Merlin. Merlin, as a musician, decides the best way to educate young Wart is to turn him into an animal of different kinds. So he turns him into a geese, and so he learns to fly with the geese. Turns him into an ant, he learns what life is like among the ants. Turns him into different kinds of animals. And finally, the last animal before he's going to become a king, is a badger. He goes and he turn, becomes a badger and he goes down and visits this older badger living in an old in a tunnel. And the, the, the badger has quite a nice tunnel. He's got pictures of his badger ancestors on the wall. <laughs> and he pulls out his, his glasses and he has a little PhD thesis that he's written. And the thesis is this. It's his retelling of the creation legend, creation, creation story, in which God, instead of creating lots of different little animals, just creates a whole lot of embryos. And as the badger said, embryos are what you looked like when you were in your mother's womb, a peculiarly repulsive human being. And so then God, after creating all the embryos, lines them up, and he looks at them and he sees that they're good. And um, he always sees things as good, whatever he does. Um, And then he says, okay, you embryos, um, you're going to have to live on Earth and you're going to need tools. And I'm going to give you a boon. You can change any parts of your body into different tools that you like. Now, for instance, right now, um, all you can do with your mouth is eat. Now, if you would like to use your mouth as a weapon, you can change it into a weapon. If you'd like to change your, your hands into garden forks so that you can dig, you can change them into garden forks, and so on down the line. And so God says, however, remember that once you change yourself into parts into different tools, you've got to stick with them. Now, I'll let you choose three tools at most. So the little embryos think about this for the fifth and sixth day. And then they line up and each of them asks for tools. And you know, the birds, of course, ask for their arms to be turned into flying machines and their, and their mouths turned into drills or spoons. Um, the badgers asked three boons. They asked for their paws to be garden forks, for their mouths to be weapons, and their skins to be shields. And he says some of the animals chose some very peculiar ones, like there was one desert lizard that asked to swap its whole body for plotting paper. So it could soak up the rain during the rainy season and hold on to it during the dry. 
and there was a toad that wanted to be a water bottle. Uh, so all the animals choose their tools, and finally a man is left at the end. And so God says, oh, I can see you've slept on your decision, little man. What have you chosen? And man says, please, God, um, can I not change? <laughs> instead, I, instead of having tools built in, I would rather learn how to make tools whenever I need them. And God is pleased. Ah, you've guessed our riddle. Okay. You don't have to be... If you have your, of course, if you have your mouth as a weapon, if you're like Ezra, Edward Scissorhands, you know, you your hands are scissors, you can't pet people or anything. Um, if your mouth is a weapon all the time, you're stuck with it. But if you learn how to use these different things as tools, you have lots more possibilities. And in the same way, your sense of self is a strategy. It's a tool. And learn how to look at your many different senses of self, all the different selves that you create in the course of the day, and learn which ones are skillful tools and which ones are not, which ones you can let go, and which ones you, can, you want to hold on to for the time being. And that way you come out ahead. So that's the parable I'd like to end with tonight. Um, are there any questions? You look awfully content. <laughs> well, Tan Jeff, um, would you say something about the Buddhist view of the id? I don't think you um, mentioned that in your comparison of the Freudian and Buddhist. Um, the id is the id. There's greed, anger, and delusion, none of which are very pretty. Well, in the Freudian system, though, is there some notion that that can be seen through? Not really. From the, from the Buddhist point of view, you learn how to channel those things. And Buddhism has more paths for sublimation than Freud had. When you come right down to it, I mean, Freud does not have strong meditation practice, strong you know, states of concentration, where you get a sense of ease and well-being. And it's learning to take your desire for pleasure and focus it there. That you can actually train your, your desire for pleasure. Once your desire for pleasure is trained, then the other elements in the id get trained as well. So this, this is a big difference. Is that, I mean, for Freud, there's this eternal conflict between the superego and the id. And from the Buddhist point of view, we can all learn how to live together if we do it skillfully. Just as in, there's no clear line between your true happiness and my true happiness. There's no basic antagonism between the superego and the id's desire for pleasure. In fact, this is one of the reasons why the, in, in Buddhism you, all the parts of your mind can talk to each other. As the superego in Freud says, just, you should, should do this, no reason given at all many times. It's just a should without a reason. It's just a, a fiat. But in the, in the case of Buddhism, our shoulds come from the desire for happiness. So it means there's, a, there's an area for negotiation. So does that mean that um, there's both the id in the Buddhist system, if you will, is both those things that you want to uproot, but also healthy desires? Yeah, you train them so that you uproot the unskillful ones. And then finally, when you don't need... Because as with all tools, it's for the sake of happiness. When you hit nirvana, you don't need tools anymore. Your desires are, are, are fulfilled. And there's nothing lacking in nirvana at all. And at that point, you can put all your tools aside. And as one of my teachers, John Sawat, once said, when you get the ultimate happiness, who cares if there's a self experiencing it or not? And it's not an issue. <laughs> it's not an issue anymore. Your sense of self was a strategy. It was a tool. When there's no need for strategies or tools, you can put it aside. 
we were just hearing a story by Wes Nisker uh, this weekend, this last week. Um, the thing is that the mind then is left as a choice that, that, that didn't solidify into something that can't be changed. But the point is that, that it seems to me like the last chapter of that story needs to be the mind can get in your trouble, in your way, which is the whole Buddhist feeling is let's make the mind skillful. Let's not be at the, at controlled by the mind, which is a room full of monkeys jumping all around, making huge, uh, you know, uh, battleships and, and, and weapons and military bases and, and uh, huge corporations that are violating all kinds of things and so on. So isn't that our last challenge? The mind is still something that tends to get channeled into unskillful ways. Oh, oh, yes, and that's what we're about. But it's the same process again, but it's just with the flexible tool that we need to I mean, work with. It's, it's basically seeing that the issue of skillfulness is a big issue. That, that's the Buddhist take on things, is learning how to be skillful in a way that's not harming anybody. Because many people's skills are, you know, how, how can we de- you know, develop a new weapon to you know, kill more people? Or how can we develop a new product that more people will buy? Uh, whereas the Buddhist idea of skillfulness is, is looking, taking more of a long-term look at this. And you think of the people who are waging war, you know, just for the sake of waging war. What kind of, from the Buddhist point of view, where did that, when does that lead? It leads down. But you look at, okay, I've got this intelligence. Let's use it in a way that's not going to harm anybody. Last week I was hearing someone talk about how in Buddhism you're not, desire, you're not allowed to have passion except for passion for the Dharma, and it sounded like it was very definitely second best kind of you know, passion for the Dharma. Ugh, it's like passion for oatmeal. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to make the point that passion for Dharma doesn't mean that you have a passion for you know, reading the teachings or something. You have a passion that we want to do what you're doing really skillfully, especially in the long term. And in, in the in the in the Once and Future King, after the badger finishes his story, Arthur Little Wart says he likes the story a lot, and the badger says, "Oh no, of course it's nothing." He gets all embarrassed, but he says at the end, he's also, I'm afraid, it's trifle optimistic <laughs> and about people using their tools well. And then he, at the very end of it, as it goes back to the different animals that Wart was, there's when he was with the ants, and when the ants were all, it was like a little communist society, and they were planning war on another society. He, he just got out of there in the nick of time. He goes, when he was a geese, excuse me, when he was a goose um, with a geese, he was flying along this formation across the North Sea. And he, there's this pretty goose next to him, so he starts talking to her. And, <laughs> and she starts telling about this island where they're flying, where they have a problem. If they land there, there's another flock of geese that's been moving in on their feeding grounds every year that they go there. And Ward says, well, why don't you fight them off? And she said, well, we do, but they keep coming back. And he says, well, that, why don't you kill them? And she looks at him, and she moves down the formation to get away. You know? <laughs> and as the badger said, there's only, only five species of animals that actually wage war. And it's a couple termites and some ants and man, human being. And so, but Wart is still, he's still a young boy, and he still likes the, the glory and everything of the, of the battle. And so the... The badger's quiet for a little while. And then as, as the last line in the chapter is, and it says, and then he seemed to change the subject. He asked, which you, did you prefer, the ants or the geese? And that's the theme of the whole book. Is, is there some way that we can live without war? Now, whether 
the whole human race is going to learn to live without war. It's, each, it's up to each of us to decide, am I going to contribute to that kind of skill or should I try looking for um, a wiser skill? Thank you. Mm-hmm.